we do that feedback just to make sure that, make sure that you're awake. So that's uh, all planned in the order of service. <clears throat> hey, uh, I want to give you an announcement. Um, there's a magazine called Portraits. It's a magazine that Arizona Southern Baptists put out uh, every other month or so. And they give a report on international missions giving and domestic missions giving. There's about 465 churches in Arizona, Southern Baptist churches, give or take one or two. And um, our church was number one in the state in terms of international missions last year. We gave almost $60,000. Let me give you a little perspective. Our church on average has about 451 people that come on a Sunday. And um, um, our church is probably in the top 10 in terms of numerical size. So there's lots of other churches that have more warm bodies in the pews or the chairs. Um, One of which is North Phoenix. North Phoenix is 2,000 people. North Phoenix gave $40,000. I'm going to call Noe Garcia and tell Noe that he needs to have his church give a lot more because they're four times the size of us, and I really will do that. Um, But we gave $60,000 to international missions uh, to push back darkness. So I just want to say, and and I'm I'm a member too, so it's not me saying, way to go team. I'm with you, and I'm deeply encouraged that we care about pushing back darkness. And our goal this year is $40,000. You say, why is it 40? Well, because we are behind budget. You say, well, um, what does that mean for international missions? Lottie's gonna have to take care of herself this year. And so there's some things that we wanna do. And to be honest, I could sit here and I could talk about, and I give examples after examples, and scripture after scripture, and guilt after guilt, but all of us know in our hearts, probably most of us in our hearts know, that we can always do more, can't we? We can always do more. We can always do more. So I will leave it at that. Um, Jared and Candace, it's great to have you here. I said that. Uh, My wife has been out of town for three and a half days, and so they've had dinners and lunches and get-togethers, so this is the first time I'm meeting Candace. We met Jared back in 2015. He was taking us to meals, showing us the city, while Candace, who was pregnant, was finding an apartment. So Jared, I don't know about your husbandry about three years ago, but she's, so we're glad that you're here. Um, It's good to have you, and, and we really do consider it a privilege and an honor to have you here, and being around people who are overseas helps convict and challenge the fickleness of my heart and helps me understand what really matters and I know you struggle with that as well it's not just because you're on the field and you're great and you always walk with Jesus and but uh, it is a reminder about what really matters just like they talked about with um, conversations that are probably uncomfortable as you had that hour and a half long conversation with somebody and this individual said hey we're basically the same except for Jesus and it gets kind of uncomfortable Jesus even said if you do not honor me you do not honor the father You cannot come to the Father but through the provision and the protection that the Father has made in His Son, Jesus Christ. I was talking with my kids last night and um, try to point them to Jesus. And I said, hey, Lydia, if you grow up to be married and you have a son, what would you name your son? She says, I would name him John. I said, okay. If you had a daughter, what would you name your daughter's name? Elizabeth. And if you only had one daughter or one son or one, one child... And if somebody said you could save someone else's life if you let John die or Elizabeth die, what would you think? She goes, who in the world would let their son or their daughter die? And I said, Lydia, that's what the good news of Jesus is. She goes, that doesn't sound very good. I said, it's such good news. So that's what God does for us. And for maybe a moment, her eyes kind of grasped the weightiness 
of the Christian message and the love that God has for not just us in the room, but for the world, right? The world. And so um, an uncomfortable truth, Jesus, the Son of God, this morning is an uncomfortable truth, okay? Genesis 19, verses 1 through 29. I'm going to read all 29 verses. We have we had an opening song. We had a welcome. We had two songs. Our choir led us in worship through song. We had an interview and I didn't even really know the order of service until this morning, and so I was already thinking this last night. I preach, I'm trying to preach about 35, 38 minutes. You say, Nate, that's a great goal, but you fail miserably sometimes. I know, I received that. I want to preach shorter for many reasons. I don't think that I need to say everything on a Sunday morning. So I normally have three pages. I have four and a half this morning. Did somebody say, oh gosh? (laughs) Sir, self-control, okay? Um... So what I'm going to probably do is halfway through my sermon, I'm just going to say, hey, we're done. We're not having a song response today because I want the uncomfortableness and the weightiness of this text to settle in your heart. Sometimes we come to church and it's joyful and encouraging and we're comforted and we're exhorted and that's right and appropriate. But sometimes you need to leave thinking, wow, that was uncomfortable and it was weighty. And I'm going to use a word, homosexual, about 19 different times because it's in the text. And what I want to do this morning is I want to, I'm going to read, a, um, read some principles that a friend of mine wrote on a blog post about this very issue. And then I want to walk through Genesis 19. Um, and I'm not going to get to everything, which is why we'll probably pick up next week. One person said, what we look at, we will become. And what we often want, we will get. What we look at is what we will become, and what we want, we will often get. Alan Ross, a commentator, author, theologian, said this, If people crave the best of this world with the world to come, they may receive neither. You cannot choose a love of the world and a master of this world over against a love for Jesus and the master of Jesus. Jesus said himself, you cannot have two masters. He is to be our master. He is the Lord and he is the king. There are two additional scenes that we're going to look at this morning and probably next week. We looked at two, scene one and scene two last week. The first scene was God's pronouncement that he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He comes to Abraham. He has called Abraham. He's renamed him, right, from Abram to Abraham, uh, the father of a multitude of nations. And he tells him, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That was scene one. Scene two is this dialogue that Abraham has with Yahweh with God where Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah and he gets them from 50 people all the way down the 10 that was where God knew he was not going any lower it wasn't bargaining he wasn't trying to haggle God God knew uh, I'm not going to go any lower than 10 and Abraham said would you surely destroy this city if there are 10 righteous people found in the city and God tells Abraham I will not destroy the city if there are 10 righteous people to be found in the city to be righteous means to attach yourself to God by way of the promises of God and you have a desire to walk in God's ways 
That's what the Old Testament understanding is of righteous. The New Testament understanding of righteous is the same, but we attach ourselves to God through the promise of Christ, and because God has changed us internally, we have a desire to walk in obedience. Not perfectly, but the pattern of our life is that we long to want to make God happy. We know that we've made God happy because we come to him through his provision. We've accepted his provision. We've accepted the protection and the love that he has demonstrated on the cross through his son Christ. And we are righteous, not in and of ourselves, but on account of Jesus. And we desire to love God, to obey him. To be wicked, as I mentioned last week, is to reject the promises of God and to not desire to walk in God's ways. You don't have a desire to walk in God's ways. You reject God's promises. So God pronounces, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham knows Lot and, 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 my, and Lot's wife and Lot's daughters and future son-in-laws and maybe other people are in the city that I love and care for. So he intercedes, pleads, prays to God. God, please don't destroy the city on account of there being righteous people in the city. And God says, I won't if there's 10 people. Scene three or part three, is the visit by the angels to Lot where they again restate destruction and say that the destruction is imminent. It's coming soon. And then there is this rescue of Lot and his wife and his daughters. As I'll read here in just a moment, the angels had to almost drag Lot out of the city. And even in the dragging of Lot out of the city, he still haggled with him about where he should go. It says a lot about Lot and how he had become acclimated to living in Sodom and Gomorrah. But we see and seen for this rescue and destruction. Now, here's why I want to take time to talk about the issue of homosexuality because it's there in the text and I'll explain where we see it and possibly talk about it next week. It's because of this. A friend of mine, Tony Morita, a pastor on the East Coast, says, when sin gets normalized in the culture, when sin gets normalized in the culture, it's very tempting to tolerate it in the church. Tolerating it comes from being uninformed about the issue. We can be uninformed in the church about the issue. But even being informed can mean that our message falls on deaf ears because of unbelief. People do not believe what we teach here at Foothills with regards to the authority of scriptures. Or it can fall on deaf ears because of our disposition when we share truth. Right? You've heard people say, I can't hear you. Your actions are speaking so much louder than your words. Or I want to hear you. But your posture and your dispositions and your actions and your life are so loud and ugly and unattractive, I don't want to hear your message even if I wanted to. And I think this is an issue that humbly the church has done a very poor job in talking about and teaching. So whether you're Tyler Roberts or Mackenzie Reed or Preston Pierce or Piper Chang or Esther Han, high school students or young adults or middle-aged adults or more wise adults, we need to understand what the Bible teaches with regards to this issue because it is everywhere and we need to understand a biblical view of sexuality as well as how to speak the truth in 
love. So I'm going to read Genesis 19 through verses 1 through 20. It's a lot. You don't have to stand. I'm going to read it for us, all right? But here's what God's word says to Israel first and then to us, all right? The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Again, I think Moses is being sarcastic. A feast of bread? I think he's juxtaposing the fact that Abraham did make a feast and Lot didn't really make a feast. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. This is scary to think about. Surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So whatever the word know means, that we may know them, Lot understands it's wicked. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Lot, what is going on? Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons, son-in-laws to be only joking. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant, servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, being behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he stood down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up, went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that important verse here. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered. It means he moves towards someone. He's not passive. He's not complacent. When the Bible says that God remembers over 70 times in the Old Testament, it means that he's moving towards someone. God remembered Abraham. He's moving towards Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is God's word to us. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give me courage to speak the word, that you would give us seeing eyes and hearing ears and a receptive heart to your word. Jesus, you tell us in John 17, 17, that your word is truth. That we become sanctified, that we become more like Jesus, to grow to be like him in our lives as we come under and believe the word. So I pray that you would encourage us Uh, this morning through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to take a little bit more time this morning, and it is 9.49. Wow. Okay. I want to read you just a couple principles that are going to preface my time this morning and next week. And here's some principles from a friend of mine who planted a church in Tucson when he was preaching through Romans chapter 1 and came upon a topic that Paul addresses in Romans 1, that being homosexuality, and this post was a reflection on what he thinks about this issue and how a pastor should preach it and how Christians should embrace it and then disseminate this information to a watching world. He says this, your tone matters as much as, if not more than in your content. Now do not hear me say, Christian brother and Christian sister, that Nathan does not care about content. That is not what I said. But with regards to this issue, your posture, your tone, your disposition is what oftentimes will be remembered more so than your content. They will remember how you interacted with them. You'll remember a preacher, how he addressed this issue. And I believe that is wholeheartedly true. Your language and your tone tell your church how we are to communicate this or how to communicate this. So when I'm preaching through this, not only am I preaching this text and walking through it, but I believe I'm training my own heart and training the people who are here what to believe about homosexuality, but how to talk about it and what we are to sound like. You're you're treating people and teaching people how to disagree with them and in a way that's amicable, kind, gracious, merciful, soft, gentle, And I I think Christians are notoriously terrible at entering into dialogue in a respectful way. And all social media has done has exposed it and heightened it. We put stuff on social media, we have conversations without ever asking the question, how will a friend who disagrees with me receive this? I'm not saying don't ever say something that People disagree. I am a preacher of the Bible in a Baptist church. That conclusion is a foregone conclusion, okay? I'm a preacher of the Bible in a Baptist church. Right there, that's not soft on the ears of many people. 
But I do think about regularly sidebar conversations and social media when I post this, when I have this conversation, how is this going to land with people who are not believers? And if you don't have a friend in your life who disagrees with you on this issue, you need to get out and make friends. Your language and tone tell people who struggle with same-sex attraction or do not struggle with same-sex attraction. They say, this is who I am. I don't want to change. Your language and your tone tell people who struggle or don't struggle what kind of reaction they can have from your church. I think this is one of the most important things about this entire topic. Sitting in our church every week are people who struggle with this issue or are not struggling with this issue. They want to try to figure out who God is and they are wondering to themselves quietly, more often than not, what do I do about these feelings? Can I share this in my small group? Can I talk to my pastor about this? And you are telling them with your tone and your disposition and your language, if I bring this up to them, this is the type of reaction that I can expect. I want my own heart, my own family, my own home, and I desperately want our church family to be a safe place where people can bring up any struggle. The church should be a place where all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds, with all sorts of convictions, with all sorts of preferences, with all sorts of lifestyles, can come here and be welcomed genuinely. It does not mean that we sugarcoat and acquiesce to culture. If you know me and have listened to me preach, you know that I do not do that, right? You understand that. Nate's not acquiescing. That's not in my resume. And if I did do that, I'd have a long line of people at my office saying, you need to get in line with what the Bible teaches. So that's, that, I don't struggle with telling people the truth. But we want to do it in a way that's kind-hearted and we're not a jerk, right? This is a gospel and worship issue. The issue of homosexuality is a gospel and worship issue. Here's why. Is Jesus Lord and King? Yes. Jesus is Lord and King of the universe. If he's not Lord and King, then we got to go back and explore and figure out who he is and what his identity is. And don't let anybody ever tell you Jesus never talked about homosexuality. He talked about it. But as Christians, there's a biblical view of human sexuality that Jesus, the biblical writers, the Bible teaches and propounds over and over again. And the biblical view of human nature implies that we are incapable of holding purely arbitrary opinions or making entirely unprincipled decisions. Translation, we need a creed to live by. We need a map to chart the course of our lives. It's not feelings. It's not happiness. It's not our circumstances. Certainly, it's not politics, it is the Bible. The Bible is that roadmap, and the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, everything we need for life and godliness is found in the Scriptures. Everything. 
Everything we need for life and us is found in the scriptures. Fifthly and lastly, as passionate as you are about homosexuality being a sin, be that passionate about greed, gossip, adultery, and anger, and a whole host of other sins. I believe that the Bible calls homosexual relationships and actions a sin. I do not think that struggling with same-sex attraction is a sin. Just like being tempted is not a sin because Jesus was tempted and yet he was without sin. So being tempted is not being sinful. Oftentimes, as we read in the book of James, when we're tempted and our desire is conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, James says, gives birth to sin and it kills it. That's where the, the threshold is. When we're tempted, what should we do? Run! Run from sin. Cling to what is good. Abstain from what is evil. So there are people all the time that are tempted. Acting on that temptation is a sin. Getting drunk. Ruling your life with self-control. Trying to control your words and not gossip. Letting the opinions of others drive your life. Being a workaholic. Finding your identity in anything other than Jesus. The Bible calls all of that and many more sins. And yet Christians have notoriously wanted to hone in on one sin and hold up placards about this sin. I don't see many Christians railing against greed and overeating and adultery and lust and gossip and anger. Let's be consistent. Okay, let's be consistent. The Bible puts them all together. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul lists homosexuality, he does so with at least 10 other sins. 10. So here's what I want to tell you in about eight minutes. <laughs> and we're going to come back next week. Here's the big idea. Same thing from last week. Failure to keep the way of justice and righteousness can bring about judgment. We see it front and center in Genesis 19. I would even add the scripture, failure to keep the way of justice and righteousness can bring about horrific judgment. Right? The word outcry, when God is pronouncing to Abraham how he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he says the outcry is great. The outcry being a judicial term that denotes that there has been oppression of the orphans and the widows and the servants. Jeremiah again used it in his book to describe the outcry and the scream of the inhabitants of a city when it's being attacked. The outcry is great. The wickedness of this city is great. Failure to keep the way of justice and righteousness can bring about judgment. Who is the original audience that Moses is writing to? Israel. It was a stern warning to Israel. Do not be like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. The narrative tells us what God thinks of the city. They are wicked and God is going to destroy the city. Judgment and deliverance. Judgment and deliverance. Is that not really, if you had to describe the Bible, God's going to judge the world, but he's going to bring about deliverance in Christ? Judgment and deliverance. And so God tells Abraham what he's going to do. Why? Because he has just renamed Abraham. You're going to be the father of the multitude of nations. 
And there's one nation I'm going to eradicate. There's one city and its inhabitants that I'm going to destroy. And I want you to know, Abraham, this does not negate the promise by which I've made you. It does not negate the actual meaning of your name. And also, Abraham, I want you to know that I'm doing this so that you'll teach your own heart and teach your descendants, as we read about in Genesis 18, what it means to fear the Lord, what it means to adhere to God's ways. If you look at Genesis 19, you see this first part, God's pronouncement that a just, comprehensive judgment is coming. Lot is at the gate of the city and he sees them. He rises to meet them. He does not run to them as Abraham does again. I don't think that a character study is what we need to glean from the text, but certainly Moses is comparing and contrasting Abraham and Lot. Lot rises, instead of running to them, he rises to meet them. Their intention is to stay in the town square, but Lot presses them, he urges them. It's the same word that's used of the men of the city pressing in on Lot. So Lot appeals to them to come stay in his home. But before they have an opportunity to rest that night, the men of the city, young and old, come to Lot's house and surround Lot's house. I had a friend of mine who was in a country in Africa and he was accused wrongly of doing something in this Islamic context and the men of the city surrounded his house. He thought he and his wife and his kids were gonna die. He was terrified. Yes, he trusted in God, he loves God, he was terrified and it gives me a visual of what's going on. They're surrounding his house. This is not a friendly visit. Well, what was this town destroyed for? Wickedness. It's the same thing that we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, with Noah and the flood. Now, what I want to do is I want to share with you a major interpretation of Genesis 19 that is wrong. Because it's out there and quote-unquote Christian circles. It's out there in literature. If you have people who study the Bible that want to stump Christians or to try to get into a dialogue or to see if you really know what's going on, they'll some oftentimes believe this. It hinges on the word there in verse 5. Where are the men who came, out, who came to unite? Bring them out that we may know them. And what a lot of people think so much so that a lot of biblical conservative scholars are writing about it, is they're bringing it up and they're saying that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed not for wickedness, which is a comprehensive term, referring to all sorts of wickedness in the city, not just homosexuality, but that as well. People will say, well, the city was destroyed not because of the wickedness of homosexuality, but because of a lack of hospitality. Now, you might think, that's ridiculous. I said last week that hospitality is a sacred act, a sacred gesture. To not show hospitality is really offensive, but that's not what the text tells us. The logic goes, so the men of Sodom surrounded Lot's house and were simply asking to be introduced to the angelic beings on account that Lot had not properly introduced them. You'll see on the screens, Verse 5, verse 8, the word actually does mean to be acquainted with. 
And it can also refer to sexual relations as it clearly does in five different places in Genesis. Context is king, meaning context helps us understand what the biblical writer is saying. Not just Genesis, but Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and the Gospel of Mark and the book of Revelation. Context is king. Three verses later, what does, what does Lot do? Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man, who've not shown hospitality to any man. Any man. That does not make sense. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. So we know from the context, Lot says, do not do this wicked thing. It's referring to sin, not of hospitality, but of sexual sin, that of homosexual sin that God condemns, and there is terrible judgment that awaits Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel, as they're hearing this, I want to remind you, to keep the way of justice and righteousness. You live in God's world. And there is a created order to things. Now, as I mentioned last week, I do not think most people set out to say, let's be evil and rebel against God. I think most people think to themselves, I just want to be happy. I want happy happiness. I want to be satisfied. I want to be filled. I want what I want. And not to be trite and not to be patronizing, but for my kids, my kids want M&M's, cookies, and ginger ale. That's what makes them happy. And those decisions aren't going to bring about sin. I mean, there's a lot of unhelpful physical ramifications if I let my kids eat whatever they want and whatever made them happy. But I'm pretty sure they're not evil. You fast forward to that of a middle school student or a high school student, which is why I mentioned several names, Mackenzie Reed or Esther Han or Piper Chang or Preston Pierce or Tyler Roberts or that of a full-fledged adult. And if we continue with the same perspective, it can not only be deeply damaging, but can have tremendously severe consequences. If what I'm living for is my happiness, it, is, it leads down a road of destruction and despair and separation from God. Instead, we should ask ourselves regularly, am I living for what God says I should be living for? And if not, we're in a world of trouble. One writer said this, and I think it's so helpful. Other worldviews, other belief systems often appear more attractive because they give to us what we know is forbidden. Think about that. Other worldviews or belief systems or lifestyles often are so much more attractive than Christianity because they promise to give us what we know in our hearts is forbidden. So I want to walk through a little chart here and then I'm going to finish. Here are some misunderstandings of homosexuality, and, I'm gonna, and I really hope that you'll come next week. I pray that you come. I know it's uncomfortable, but I pray that you come. Here's some misunderstandings of homosexuality. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. A way to kind of summarize the Bible. God's created. We have fallen. God brings about redemption, rescue, forgiveness, 
salvation and restoration. He's going to fix everything. We long for that day. Don't you long for that day? I long for the day where there's not the volatility and the chaos and the dysfunction and the sin in my own heart and outside of me. Restoration. It's a promise that it's coming. Creation. A misunderstanding of homosexuality. They are not like me. They say, well, if that's a misunderstanding, what do you mean? And I'll get there. They're not like me. And even that verbiage, even that posture, the starting place is wrong. Fall. Their sin is not like mine. I understand there's a uniqueness to your sin. You are who you are, and that person is who that person is. But what we do is we say they're in that category and I'm in this category and they're just they're much much worse off look at them their sin is not like mine redemption they are defined by their sin and restoration they don't change boy that's a hopeless statement isn't it they don't change the person who struggles with immorality, they don't change. The person who struggles with chronic anger, they don't change. The person who struggles with gossip, they don't change. The person who struggles with greed, they don't change. The person who struggles with unforgiveness, they don't change. The person who struggles with fill in the blank, they don't change. The hope of the message of Jesus is anybody can change. Anybody can change. Anybody can change. Here is the truth in Jesus. And then I'm going to close with a statement that I want to read. We are all created in God's image. Man, woman, boy, or girl. Every single person has fallen. Every single person has fallen. Redemption, we get a new identity in Jesus. The person struggling with anger, the person struggling with unforgiveness, the person struggling with greed, the person struggling with bitterness, the person struggling with immorality, the person struggling with pornography, the person struggling, fill in the blank, the person struggling with homosexuality. In Christ, what do we get? A new identity, and our sin does not get to define us. Jesus does. And restoration. The heterosexual who struggles and has perverted their sexuality because we all have. None of us has been pure and holy every second of our life. The homosexual who has perverted their sexuality. The person, every person who struggles in their sexuality to actually live out what God has created us to be and to do and live. We hope in what? Future grace. Future grace. God, give to us what we need to walk the seemingly impossible life. So next week, I'm going to walk through the text more so than what I did. You say, you didn't walk through it a lot. I know. I know. I don't need an email. I don't need you to tell me after the service, okay? I know. But I want to take a little bit more time. I'm going to read this to you because I think that with this issue, the Christian culture lacks compassion. Jesus looked at Jerusalem 
and said, how I long to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks. He had compassion. It means not in words. It means that you feel something in the inner parts of your soul. You have compassion. You hurt. So one pastor said, and then I'll close, and I'll pray, and I'll give announcements. There are many people who have no idea what they should be living for or the meaning of their lives, nor have they any guide to tell them right from wrong. God doesn't look down at people in that kind of spiritual fog and say, you idiots. When we look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, and say things like, serves them right, or we mock them on social media, what kind of imbecile says something like this? When we see people of the other political party defeated, we just gloat, this is all a way of detaching ourselves from them. We distance ourselves from them partly out of pride and partly because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours. God doesn't do that. God does not do that. Real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our hearts to others means the sadness of their condition makes us sad. It bothers us. It affects us. And that is deeply uncomfortable. But that is the character of compassion and that is the character of the God that we serve. He did not look at you and say, stupid little people. He loved you and provided a way in which we can know him and have our identity changed. So I have taken a picture in my mind, and we have cameras, and I have taken a picture of everybody who's here. (laughs) And I expect you to be here next week because I'm going to walk to the text, and we're going to have some equipping time of how to think about this issue and how to speak the truth in love, all right? I'm going to pray and give announcements, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I was nervous and anxious about this truth. I do not preach it and share it from some ivory tower looking down. Father, I have friends in my life that I love and care for deeply. And their identity is this, and I have other friends who I love and care for deeply, whose identity is in Jesus, but are struggling. And I am certain in this room, there are myriads of people. Father, help us to be men and women who have a slowness to speak and a quickness to listen, that we might be, 2 Corinthians 2, the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. May we smell and act and speak and respond in a way that pleases Jesus. Father, give us exactly what Jared Flynn said a moment ago. Give us courage to wade into people's lives, to love people well, to have awkward conversations, and may you increasingly make this place that we love and care for called Foothills Baptist Church to be a place where we can dialogue, where we can engage, where we can appeal, 
and we can point people to the sufficiency and the power and the love and the compassion that is found in the name given to men and women, boys and girls, by which they must be saved. The name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, a couple announcements on the screens, and there is a potluck picnic next next Sunday, and it's going to be a great time. If you're new, please come. If you've been here a while, it's a great chance just to meet and connect with people. We had a blast last April. It's at Desert Foothills. It'll be immediately following the second service. If you want to know what to bring, you can go to guest services or go online to events, and uh, please don't be the person that thinks, I'm not going to bring anything because everybody else will. If everybody does that, we're going to fast and pray at the park, okay? And I don't want to fast and pray. I want to eat, okay? Um, the next announcement is uh, Angel Tree. The tags will be available in a couple, several Sundays. Again, I love that graphic. People who are in prison through any number of reasons who have kids that are, they're not going to see over Christmas, we partner with them through Angel Tree. Sharon Peak, Sharon Pace, the Allens, many other people, the church, we come alongside to serve 51 families and 128 children. It is a fantastic ministry. My kids went with me last year. We showed up and gave a gifts and got to encourage people, and they were just taken back by our church that many of whom are never going to come here, but it's a great way to tangibly show the love of Jesus. And the last announcement is it's been great being in the church in here. It is. I love being here. I love it. It's the highlight of my week to be with you. But God doesn't call us just to be a holy huddle. We're called to go out and be the church out there. Speak the truth in love. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Who am I that the highest king would welcome?